This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Have you seen the Amazon Prime docuseries, Shiny Happy People? Were you shocked to hear the wholesome American Duggar family was involved in a cult? A cult full of abuse, sex, and religious trauma? A cult that claimed to educate children and planned to use them to take over the world. Have you wished you could sit down with an IBLP survivor and hear more of the story? Join hosts Jessica Goforth and Alexis Gray on Leaving the Village, a podcast by IBLP survivors centering their lived experiences and shining a light on all the hidden torment and harm they endured growing up in the cult shown on the groundbreaking docuseries. We have exclusive interviews with cast members where we laugh and cry and go behind the scenes with them as we discuss our shared experiences. If watching the documentary left you wanting more, check out Leaving the Village on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast platform. This isn't a normal church. No. It's a cult. Every IFB church is a powder keg ready to explode. I hate that he was my first everything. These people are gods. And they said, we're going to brainwash you. We're going to brainwash the junk out of your brain. Women have to be submissive. He would say, this cup is poison. Drink it. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. Today on the show, we are excited to introduce our guest. Um, He is the host of the Preacher Boys podcast that takes a deep dive into the independent fundamentalist Baptist world. And uh, it is... You've, you've probably heard us talk a little bit about the IFB movement on our show. Um, we've had a few guests on to discuss that. That's also a part of my own background. Um, but Eric's show, Eric Skwarzynski, who is our guest today, his show is really a, a deep dive into that world. So, Eric, welcome to the Full Mutuality Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for getting my last name right. So that's a, that's a point <laughs> you can put up on the board. So Nice. I don't know that I would have gotten it right, but Nate's better with the language okay, stuff. Good than to I defer am. that stuff as, as, <laughs> as often as possible. So. Is it uh, is it Polish? It is Polish, but I don't know anything about my <laughs> okay. lineage beyond that. So just to cut to the next question, I don't speak Polish. I don't know <laughs> Polish. I actually used to work marketing and I met a real Polish person who's like from mm. Poland. And I said my name and she said, that's not how you say that. And I was like, look, we're three generations in on it. We're going to stick with this one. You can keep your pronunciation. But. So if I said to you, Yakshimash, doesn't mean anything. Don't. No. Not even the hello? I don't no, speak hard. in tongues. Okay. I don't. She's the former Pentecostal. I am so. the former Pentecostal side of things. <laughs> but I had, a, I had a Polish, I had quite a few Polish coworkers. So I learned like just the cursory hellos and how are you's and, and how to say pain and, yeah, and different things. I know more <laughs> Spanish than Polish at this point. So isn't that the case for us Americans? Right. Right. I need to learn it. I need to really learn it. Yeah. So, um, Eric, tell us a bit about your your background, um, especially as it relates to Christianity and religion. I know at the at the at the 
at the front of this, I mentioned IFB. So that's sort of, you know, your, your area of expertise, quote unquote, and, and the, the part of your life that I think based on what I've heard from your podcast, it seems to be that that was the, um, the bulk of your life in Christianity. Um, could you go ahead and I guess maybe start from the top or wherever you feel like is a good place to get the origin story going? Yeah. I mean, the origin story with religion is simultaneous with being born. I mean, I was born and raised in the independent fundamental Baptist world. Uh, for those that don't know what that is, uh, take Southern Baptists and dial it to 11, like super, <laughs> super conservative, like 1950s style Christianity, wearing your Sunday best to church, King James only Bible, you know, um, don't dance, you know, don't go to movie theaters, don't do anything that could be perceived as worldly in any sense. And so, yeah, really from the time that I was learning the sky is blue, one plus one equals two, I was learning that, you know, Jesus existed and, you know, God is going to punish you and send you to a burning hell for all eternity if you don't repent and turn from your sins and become a Christian. And so I, it is the default programming of my brain. Like I always have that underlying Christian upbringing. Um, but yeah, as far as being in it, I went from the time I was in kindergarten to the time I was in 12th grade, uh, I went to a small private Christian school all within the same campus. So I literally grew up in the same spot Monday through Friday at school, Saturday out knocking doors, inviting people to church and Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, attending church services. And my parents were on staff. So to say that I spent more time on church property than my own home is not an understatement. Like it's the truth. I slept at home and did everything else basically at the church. Oh, that's so relatable. Um, the only difference is that my dad worked in the secular world, but mm. my mom worked, worked at, for the Christian yeah, school. That like you were K to twelve at your yeah. IFB <clears throat> church attached. What did your mm-hmm. What did your dad do? Uh, he was a banker. Okay. So, uh, and and from my family didn't even start in IFB. Like we converted to it, quote unquote. My mom came out of uh, sort of a mainstream. Uh, Baptist world, the the church that she was a part of prior to us ending up in the IFB was a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, but they were sort of like a uh, international, non-denominational styled church that just happened to hold to a few of the Baptist distinctives enough so that they could have membership in the the Southern Baptist Convention. But then we moved to a town that was <clears throat> kind of out there, and we were looking for a quote unquote Bible believing church. And my family landed in in the IFB, and I was How there old for. Were you? Uh, I think I was like. Five okay. years old. So you grew up. Yeah. <laughs> you grew up in yeah. it from yeah. Yeah. My, from my, tiny, tiny. My dad was uh, a postal worker until I was in like second mm. or third grade and then left that job and started working at the church. So like, and he came from a Catholic background. My mom was like a, a conservative Baptist background that was closer to IFB than Southern Baptist. But mm-hmm. I don't think IFB was really a big, as big a thing when her parents were kind of coming into it. So yeah, that's interesting. A lot of crossover. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do find it. I, I like your description. You've said it both here and, and in other, um, other, other podcasts that you've been on where you sort of describe IFB as 1950s Christianity. Um, and I like that. It's very, it's very apt because I often have to describe IFB when I'm talking to others with all of these descriptors, but it really does help to kind of stick 1950s Christianity. Think of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Think of what a church might have looked like back then and how people would have dressed and and worshiped and that's that's essentially the IFB. Right. Yeah. 
And it's very much the Andy Griffith, leave it to beaver. <laughs> like, yes, and is. that's all stuff they cite. So it's not even out of mm-hmm. pocket to say that. Like, but it's, no. it's very much that. I think I said in the documentary, but it's like going to your grandma's church. Like imagine mm-hmm. you're on vacation, you go to your grandma's kind of stuffy church in the country. Like that's basically what it was with a little extra hellfire and brimstone, depending on which one you're in. Yeah. So. Yep. Exactly. I think that would be worth like, we could talk about this a little bit too, because mm-hmm. there are, there are various branches, um, at least from how I perceive it too. Um, both when I was in the IFB and, you know, stepping out of that world and the different branches and affiliations that are all kind of swirling around out there. So I'm curious to get some of your thoughts on that. But um, I, I am curious to sort of track your journey a little bit more. So what what was it that prompted you uh, to leave the IFB? Or, or maybe where did your journey through the IFB and then in later forms of Christianity take you? Yeah, I mean, I never really questioned the IFB at all. Um, and I didn't have a reason to, like, it's all I knew. So it's like, like I said, the sky's blue. Like you don't question that. You just know it to be true. And so, um, that rhymed a little bit, but anyway, I grew up (laughs) in it and, um, never questioned. I thought we had the right ways. Like I, I question in the sense of, Hey, why do we do this? But like the answers for me were always sufficient because ultimately they were rooted in, well, God said we're supposed to do this. Okay. (laughs) That's the top of the, you know, that's the top of the chain of command. So I'm not going to question any further than that. Um, What made me actually question was around the time I was 16, 17 years old, um, a youth pastor from a church in Northern California who I was familiar with and had known from activities and things relocated to our church in Southern California very suddenly. And Mm -hmm. I knew some kids on his basketball team that I was friends with because we played in tournaments together and stuff. And I texted them and said, Hey, it's pretty cool. Your former coach and youth pastor is at our church. Are you guys sad that he left and that kind of conversation? And he said, not really. I'm kind of upset because he left without saying goodbye. And so I Googled Hmm. to see if the church had put out a, hey, here's where he's going, or, you know, here's a goodbye send-off announcement. And instead, I found warrant issued for Chico youth pastor arrest, molestation of teenage girl, yada, 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 all of this long story detailing abuse in Chico, California. And so I was panicked. I got this news. And my first thoughts I remember were, this sounds like the Catholic church. Like this doesn't happen in our denomination. Like mm-hmm. at, up to that point, I thought like we were kind of this city set on a hill kind of vibe. And yeah. so that was, what, what year was that? Sorry. It was 2011. Okay. Yeah. So I was like super shattered. I started going to leadership saying like, well, obviously they, they don't know. So I started going to people, bring it up. And I was either met with apathy of like, okay, what's the big deal? Or more frequently from leadership, the, mentality was anger. It was like, why Mm. are you so bitter about this? You need to forget, like, keep in mind, active arrest warrant at this point for this guy. And they're really upset. I'm bringing it up. And so basically over the next two years, I'm going back and forth with leadership. He's going back and forth with trials at that point, ends up pleading no contest to abuse. Like he did it. Um, Mm. And, you know, to this day, like they still have a really negative connotation of me because of how that situation went down. And so it put a lot of strain on me and my family. It put a lot of strain on all the people I was with. And keep in mind, again, I grew up in it. So like my youth pastor used to be my fourth grade teacher. And like, he was the guy that ran the buses and like, 
it was like having your family kind of slowly turn on you in a mm. really brutal way. And it felt very lonely for those last two years. This was in 2011. You were, you were, you were in youth group. So you must've been in high school. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was like six, to- 16 ish. I, I, mm. I always go back and forth. I think 16 or 17, somewhere in there. I could do the math okay. easily, but, but yeah, somewhere in that that's, range. That's a lot for a teenager. Yeah. I was going I into mean, 11th grade. Yeah. 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 Like I, I was thinking, I mean, <clears throat> we all, I, I don't know for me personally as a teenager, sure. I had like big thoughts and, and ideas about, uh, you know, what I wanted to do and, and who I cared most about, especially in those Christian circles. Um, and also I guess that was the year of nine 11 for me. So, you know, we were, we were dealing with all of that, but even like that, that intense sort of this, there's a predator right here in our midst. I couldn't imagine if I knew about that as a, a 10th or 11th grader, I, I don't know what I would, what I would do. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and it, but it almost, it almost acts as kind of foreshadowing, foreshadowing for you and your life and what you would eventually start to be doing, um, with, with your, your podcast project and, and other projects that you've been, you've been working on. Um, so, you um before you get to this point where it seems to me that the the preacher boys podcast is a very critical look at christianity but that that doesn't happen right away right like no. you you're still pretty in inside the evangelical belief system at that point right yeah so i left i graduated in 2013 um and so I left and basically I was registered for Bible college in Lancaster. I was going to go to West coast Baptist college. Um, and so like, I want to say April of 2013, a guy calls me that I had met at a Christian camp and I had connected with him because he ran a media ministry and I was really fascinated with videography and, you know, all of that kind of like digital storytelling. And he basically called me and said, Hey, you're registered for Bible college. Like, what are you going to do? And I said, basically not anything that they offer at Bible college. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And he said, how would you like to go to India and film a documentary with us and then do an internship for a year? And I said, I would much rather do that. And I basically pulled out of Bible college and went and did that instead. And so I went and did that. And I, uh, in tandem with that, went to a church that was connected to it that was out of the IFB kind of freshly. They were still independent Baptists, but they were, you know, they understood the movement had a lot of issues. They were okay. like a lot less heavy on certain translations and music and like they let go to movies. And like, it was just a very like freeing, like very much in the JD Greer kind of like we're gospel centered kind of vibe. Okay. Okay. And so I got into that. Meanwhile, I was working with a production company. All the clients were independent Baptist. So like I was in the circle, but Mm -hmm. not in the circle. I was critical of it, but I was going and filming, you know, and didn't yet realize just how widespread and pervasive the abuse was. Like I was kind of figuring out like, oh, they're legalistic. They're this, like they have issues on this front. They're politically really weird. But to me, it was more like, oh, it's the legalism. It's this. And then I knew certain branches, like I knew the Hiles Anderson world was weird. And I knew like, I knew little pieces of the history, but I was slowly building it up. Um, I did that for about a year and a half. 
Um, one of the clients was a missions agency. I went and worked with them, fell in love with the work they were doing with the orphanage and pastoral training, quit my job and went and worked for the missions organization. And that's kind of the 10,000 foot view, but you know, the missions agency after about two years there had a pretty drastic falling out and that kicked me out of ministry basically for (laughs) until now. And there's no chance of me going back into that world anytime Mm -hmm. soon. So um, yeah, I can zoom in anywhere along that journey, but that's kind of like the, the roadmap. It was like four years of just, I'm Christian, but I'm not part of this and I don't feel at home in this. Where is my home? It doesn't feel like, you know, and the more that I experienced different branches of American Christianity and listened to read more books or listen to podcasts. It was like, these guys all have weird hangups on something that I just mm-hmm. don't feel aligned with what I perceive Christianity to be. Mm. My, it, it's funny because your, your story and your interests sort of parallel even my own to a degree. Like um, when I graduated from high school, um, I attended Bob Jones University and I wanted to study film. So I did three semesters of film and video production at Bob Jones University. And I mean, you know, you know, the works that come out of there. There's Sheffy, there's Red right. Runs the River. Um, I think I actually worked on the production of Appalachian Trial, Very cool. which is just awful. <laughs> but but to so be bad. fair, to be fair, as far as IFB colleges go, they've got a fairly legit production crew and they've got um actually i don't know if you saw this i interviewed recently the cinematographer for saw x and we started talking and he's like um, it was for my film podcast but we started talking and he says i say like oh tell me a little bit about what sparked your interest in film he starts going down. He's like, I grew up super religious. You probably wouldn't resonate with this at all. Grew up super religious, very fundamentalist in South Carolina. And I was like, did you go to Bob Jones? He's like, yeah, my parents were on staff. <laughs> so we ended up talking for like 30 minutes about his experience at Bob Jones and like watching the Saw movies like secretly. And like he worked at Answers in Genesis for a while. And I was like, dude, oh what's God. we have a whole nother podcast here. But um, <laughs> you're like, I don't know if I right? interviewed you so, for the right podcast. Right. I have two. Yeah. So I ended up releasing, a crossover episode. Yeah. Then. I ended up releasing that section on Preacher Boys. I was like, it's too, it's too good. I got to leave it. Yeah. In, but that's fantastic. Um. So yeah. So then that brings us to, I guess now ish, the, mm-hmm. the Preacher Boys podcast. And this is um, where you you decide you want to take a look at the IFB. You want to um, interview survivors. You want to analyze the abuses that are going on there. Why? <laughs> Why? Why is this a thing that you felt you needed to do? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I the minute that I found out as a teenager about that story, it drove me to start researching the movement itself. And so, like, literally, because I'm a, a youngster, you know, I had – smartphone. And so I would literally be sitting there with every guest speaker Googling every time they mention a name Googling and mm. was really doing all the stuff I do now. Just, it wasn't going anywhere. It was just, I would keep it for myself to know, like, who can I trust? And so, you know, I realized very quickly, my pastor always talked about his pastor who loved Reese's cups and Dr. Pepper. And like, and he went in uh, Indiana to college. So like I started realizing, Oh, that's Jack Hiles. Who's Jack Hiles. I started studying him found out about David. Like I started going down these rabbit holes and that never stopped. And so over the years, like from 2013 to 2019, 
I was constantly on forums, reading stuff about it, buying books that were connected to it, and mm. realizing more and more like, oh my God, this is like a huge map of just connections of all these independent quote unquote churches all over the country that share speakers that pass pedophiles around. Like it gets really horrible. And um, basically I would tell my wife all the time, I was like, my background is documentaries. I just want to make a documentary about this. Like, Mm -hmm, and she mm -hmm. would just say, if you're going to do it, do it. Don't talk about it anymore until (laughs) until you do. (laughs) And what happened was in 2019, I was working marketing at a, for an auto group in Southern California I was driving home and I was on Twitter, which I don't recommend doing both of those Hmm. at the same time, but I saw (laughs) a story from Dundalk, Maryland of Cameron Giovanelli, who was a pedophile pastor who preyed on a teenage girl. And what sent me over the edge was one, it looked just like the case I had seen when I was like in 10th, 11th grade. And I was like, this is still happening. This is crazy. But then what really pushed me over the edge was there were pastors who were sending out tweets of support of him and trying to raise funds for his legal fees. And it pissed me off. And I pulled Mm -hmm. off into my apartment. I sat in the parking lot of where I lived and I pulled out my phone and recorded like a nine minute video saying, if you're connected with this ministry, this ministry, this ministry, like all the people that were connected in any way, like you need to ask your pastor why you're connected And if you don't get a good answer, you need to leave your church. And that was the first time I ever like publicly kind of popped off about it. I'd had private conversations, but like that was me kind of saying like, hey, this is like a culty, bad, weird boys club that's passing around predators, like ask some questions. And I went inside, I cut together like a little reel and said like, hey, I want to cover this. Like if anybody has a story they want to share, you know, let me know. I hope I can get like two or three. And like the next week I had like 20 people that had reached out and then I realized like, okay, I should probably do a podcast. Like I can't start like capturing these kind of stories. And so it really was just fueled by frustration that it had happened for so long and that these stories all look the same. And, you know, there was Sarah Smith's incredible article that really covered like 400 mm. cases of this, but for someone to have the resources and the time to be able to do this every week you know, without having to worry about passing an editor or like getting approval to post this in our newspaper every single month, like I could do it, you know? And so it was just, it was scratching my own itch of like, someone needs to cover this in a methodical, consistent way. And now we're almost in the fourth year of doing this and the stories have not slowed down. So that's both incredible and harrowing, eye opening. I mean, <clears throat> You know, just listening to your podcast and getting a, a sense for um, the IFB. I mean, like for me, what's relatable is leaving the IFB because of its legalism, right? I, um, yeah. I, I grew up a musician and I loved all styles of music, but we weren't you had to allowed to hide that all exactly. the contraband music. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> get in trouble for leading worship with Michael W. Smith at Bob Jones. Oh no! <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Get being given fifty demerits for. You know, and, it, and and the song itself, I played it within the, the standard style. You know, don't don't emphasize the two and four beats of your four four measure. Yeah. Um, you, you know, thought your strumming you could get pattern. away with it, but they found out you were playing <laughs> demonic yeah. Christian worship Christian music. Christian worship music. <laughs> well, my wife makes fun of me. I thought for a long time I didn't like music. Like I literally thought like I would tell people like I don't like music. Like it doesn't do anything for me. That's because I only listen to like 
quartets and like the same kind of music every week. And, um, I remember like in high school, uh, my friend had a Zune that had, which is like an iPod for those that don't know Mm -hmm. what a Zune is. And, uh, he, he like gave me one of the earphones and we were listening to Weezer on the way to one of our, um, fine arts competitions. And so I got obsessed with Weezer. It was the first time, like, it was Weezer and ACDC. I was like, I love music. Music is so cool. (laughs) And so I was, like, sneaking it. And I remember I got in trouble for listening to Weezer. And my wife to this day thinks that's, like, so funny. She's like, you weren't allowed to listen to Weezer? But anyway, that was, like, kind of my my gateway. She doesn't come out of IFB at all? She she grew up evangelical, but, like, they just came to the Christian school. So, like, she... She understands the vocabulary, but like sometimes I still say stuff and she's like, You guys really thought that? Like she doesn't understand sometimes the levels and like the it depth. It was dialed up yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I did grow, grow up evangelical and well, Pentecostal has its own layers of very bizarre stuff yeah. when you start digging into it. It's, it's, I mean, sometimes I feel like IFB and Pentecostal have a lot of dialed up extremism. It's mm-hmm. just in different ways. Right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, and they hate I, each other. <laughs> like, yeah, yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. We, right. we had that conversation <laughs> over Christmas explaining it to his family who's secular. And we're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So for, for us, Nate wasn't a Christian in my denomination because, well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So mm. they were clearly, and he's like, well, in, in our denomination, in IFB, you were just, a, you weren't speaking in tongues. That is a devil coming devil, out of your mouth. Were possessing you. So you guys were <laughs> definitely evil. I was like, yeah, it's so it's evangelicalism is so fascinating yeah, in that way. How, but they're how so many, similar. And, they're mm-hmm, so the um, same. Like, I'm like, do you remember Chick Jacks? He's like, yeah, I remember that. And I feel like in my Pentecostal <laughs> yeah. church, we had them like lining up in the front, these chick tracks you could grab mm-hmm, so yeah. you're right like the connectedness even from the places that are you'd assume are not connected have so many yeah. things in common but it is fun to hear his ifb stories because i'm like wow like yeah, yeah I, like, I think before i ever met him i was reading up on king james <clears throat> only so i was like this is so weird this is so bizarre like you're not a real mm-hmm. christian if you don't read the king james yeah. my my church was not King James only. Um, we do they have like a certain translation? We use the King James uh, during the during the Sunday school hour and the morning worship service. But the evening worship service, our pastor liked to use the New American Standard Bible because it was more intellectually, I don't know, advanced or something. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny, just like the certain, I don't know, the different packaging, right? The things they yeah. get hung up on and that become their. Yeah, and yeah. it's it, but it's all yeah. It just depends what the hang up is. Like the circle too. Like Bob Jones was a lot mm-hmm. less than like King James only world, <laughs> um, but like Pensacola grads were like so into it. So yes. it's like it's just funny what became like the hammering point. Um, but on on the Pentecostal note, have you read Alice Gretchen's book um, Wayward? No, and and I also have to say like I ejected out of Pentecostalism after like I grew up in it, but like by the time I. I think I was maybe even 14 okay. around there and and uh, and I'd never spoken in tongues. And I think for me, that was the thing that made me start to dig on into it because I was like that kid that was just so earnest and mm-hmm. fervent. I was like, God, I just want to be one of yours. And, and they were teaching like, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved, basically. Like yeah. that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I started praying for that. They were like, how do I, how do I do that? They're like you pray, ask God, he'll give it to you. And I was praying and praying and it wasn't working. And yeah. Like I'd known kids maybe were faking it around me, but I was like, that's not how I am. I want to make sure that I really, it's stuck, right? And in and, uh, Pentecostalism, it, very much like you could lose your salvation, that fear of like, were you really part of, yeah. you know, were you, were you secure? It was a question that I had all the time. So I was, you know, trying to get the Holy Spirit 
and it wasn't working. And then I, as a kid who loved to study and learn, I would read through my own Bible. And it was reading through, I think it was Corinthians. Like, does everyone have the gift of tongues? Does everyone have the gift of prayer? I was reading that on my own and being like, wait a second, there is an answer to this question. And it's not what the church is telling me. And I started not from anyone telling me this, but like on my own discovery being like, I don't think I believe the doctrines of my church. And I wanted to get baptized. And you had to agree to like this whole pages of stuff before you get baptized. I read, start, I don't think a lot of people do it like the terms and conditions for like an Apple product. You just scroll, scroll, <laughs> click or whatever, whatever software right. you're downloading. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't do that. I read through all the lines of what they wanted me to before saying yes to getting baptized. I was like, well, I don't agree that everyone should have to speak in tongues to be right. Christian. And mm-hmm. then I realized I'm in the wrong church. And then I ended up in, um, in an open brethren church which came out of a closed brethren church and the brethren movement is a whole other yep. so close to IFB actually the closed brethren are almost it sounds identical. the most culty of everything we've talked about oh, the open man. brethren you know it's like okay <laughs> yeah no the open brethren actually unlike the closed brethren that they come out of it's it's like probably the difference between your IFB and then your non-denominational like, like it's gotcha. just like that switch or over Baptist, no, yeah. yeah more unbuttoned so, kind of right. vibe mm-hmm. You know, I was like so attracted to the eternal security part, but like there was stuff about the Calvinist stuff that just it didn't make sense to me. I was like, wait, so you don't – God chooses some people for heaven and damn some oh, people this is permanently. a conversation I would love to dive into. <laughs> <laughs> so mean, off like, rails. No, but but as, a, yeah. as a younger one, I was just fascinated with these questions. I'm yeah. like, how, why would God be like this? This doesn't make any sense to me. So mm. and I always kind of – you know, wherever, whatever trajectory it was on, I was never able to to totally digest the the package that was given to me from my church or something in it that was just not making sense to me. And I just kept questioning it. But yeah, the the non-denominational world that I ended up, I guess, so I don't know that all the ins and out of the Pentecostal movement as much. Um, Also grew up in Canada. So I'm familiar maybe a bit with like the Italian Pentecostal movement because they had their own IPC, uh, Italian Pentecostal Church, Hmm. the Canada denomination. And I'm more familiar with that. But even then, not super in depth. I just know like what it's like to be at a service and hear people start speaking in tongues on the regular. I know what it is to have the preacher come in from out of town and slaying everyone in the spirit around you and everyone starts falling. I've seen these things happen and been weirded out. Like even Mm. though I'm familiar with the culture, I'm like, Ah, this something is really off here, yeah. you know. You'd resonate with the emotional side of her book. Because um, she talks about that, like, earnestly wanting it and, like, mm. feeling so frustrated on the platform. Like, why am I not getting slain with the spirit? But, like, her mm. story is, like, really powerful. Um, and, like, she she was in, like, the whole Rodney Howard Brown crazy. Oh, like, he's so very like, popular okay, yeah. with my old church. So my old church, and I won't even give their name away, but they were like the only church in Montreal that I know of that refused to close during the pandemic. And Canadians are very like, they're not like American evangelicals. They try and keep it a little low key because they yeah. don't want to look crazy. It's a more secular culture. But man, yeah, Rodney Howard Brown, popular in my in, in my old church that I grew up in. And that church has just totally gone off the yeah. deep end. And like, I have, I mean, I know people where you know, if if something happens to them, anything physical goes wrong, whether it's a limb, they lose anything. They believe God will grow back mm-hmm. and they just need to pray and have faith. And it's, uh, you know, when you hear about Bethel and like yeah. their prayer over yeah, rece- yeah. over a child that died, you know, wanting them to mm-hmm. be raised from the dead, really that sort of belief system where any sort of physical ailment is, God will absolutely heal it. And if he doesn't, it's your fault is embedded into that. And it's hard because I grew up with a dad who had mental health issues, who was schizophrenic, who, so he was just demon possessed, you know, mental health is not really at all. I have listened to pastors, you know, shame people for being on antidepressants and just been so, as somebody who did struggle with depression myself, it's disturbing. All of it is just, 
You look at it and go like being in these circles, it's dangerous. Like it's dangerous to so many subsets of people. You, um, so your, your podcast talks about, um, like a lot of the abuses that go on in the IFB. Like, how is that for you on a regular basis, listening to stories repeatedly of, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, the, the religious trauma that, that exists in a place like this. Um, how do you work through that? What, what are, do you do anything personally to, um, to, cause like if I, if I were in your shoes, you know, week in and week out interviewing multiple people who all have some, some stories like, like what, what's on your podcast, I would, I would lose my shit. I'd be, I'd be done for. How do you, what, what, what are your, your thoughts, practices, anything that you do? I'm sad all the time. You know, that's my approach. <laughs> no, um, no. When I started the show, I um, was sad all the time. Like it was a, and I think it's one of those things where I, I don't know. Everybody processes emotions differently. So like the way that I process emotion is like in the moment, things don't bother me it's like three days later. Like I always have delayed reactions to stuff. So like, okay. you know, someone passes away, I'll feel okay. Like, like almost to where it's, Numb. well, yeah. Like w- w- when my grandfather passed away, I felt like, Oh, I'm doing great with this. Like I accepted it. Like, obviously you cry a little bit, but like, even for that, like I, I expected this torrent of emotion. It was like months later and we were taking my daughter swimming and my grandpa was the one who taught us to swim. So like, it was then that like, I like started crying where I was like, Oh, he's not here for this first moment of her swimming. Like that's the way my brain works. And so like, it's really hard for me to measure how much something's going to affect me. So when I started preacher boys, I was like, I put up a Calendly link and, and it was literally from like this time to this time, every single day. If you want to share your story, just pick a time. Let's talk. And so there were days I was doing like three, four interviews in a day and a couple months into that, like probably not even a couple months, like, oh, now I'm just breaking down over this thing. There's so many stories. There's such a flurry of information. I don't know which specific thing is affecting me right now, but like, I can't do this. And so it just became this game of like, okay, now I'm going to do two a day. Now I'm going to do to a week. Now I'm going to do them on these days of the week because they're less stressful. It's like figuring out the balance. But like now I feel like I have such a good balance of like, I'll record an interview. I love taking walks. I go take a walk between calls or I like find times to intentionally process because like there were periods where like it would just shut me down. And like what I don't think people realize is I'm like almost 300 episodes into the show but like I've had conversations with people that have never hit the podcast, like things that either mm. go to law enforcement because they have a, you know, a legitimate case things where I've helped people connect with a lawyer, like things that have mm. been recorded, but then for their safety, they don't want to release it. So like I've recorded it and heard it, you know, uh, one of the most, I'm not going to repeat it, but one of the most harrowing stories that I've heard, nobody's heard, but me and the people involved in the case, and so like you're carrying this kind of secondhand trauma from other stories while also doing it. So it, for me, it's just been trying to find that balance of how do I decompress, you know, taking walks has truly saved my life in a lot of ways, like going and reconnecting with like 
outside and breathing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also, you know, it's been healing hearing stories and sharing those commonalities, you know, like where, you know, the podcast has become the way in which I process my own trauma Mm. and then I have my own life outside of it. So instead of trauma being a constant hum in the background of my life that I'm not addressing, it's become a very intentional focus on it in these moments and then leave it there as much as you can. So, um, you know, it's always, I always joke, it's a revolutionary thing. I go take walks and I space out my podcast, but that's really what it's been, you know, is, is that, but also some stuff just hurts and it's heavy stuff and you can't fully process evil that exists on such a scale. So, um, I don't know. Hi, this is Peter Crane from Burlington, Vermont, currently in San Francisco, and you're listening to Full Mutuality. Hey everyone, I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. Something nice that you shared that I thought was really helpful was that you were expressing how, you know, there's some stuff that when it happens to you at the time, you're not ready. You don't even see it as an issue or it doesn't hurt you or it doesn't affect you. Mm. And then later on, like you were talking about when you got to the age of your youth pastor or something like that, that all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, how did he think mm-hmm. this behavior was normal? How did he how did he process to go and and, and react in this certain way? Like it, it hit you very differently how you viewed him before you got to his age versus, you know, and and so it's interesting. Like, I think sometimes people just look at religious trauma very linear, linearly, like, okay, you went through this event and then right. you kind of unpack it all and then like be done. But like, there's certain <laughs> things that can't hit you until certain periods of time in your life. Yeah. There's certain developmental things you go through. And then you, you, have, you always have different lenses that you replay your past with. And it's interesting, like how, that will change even your perceptions of your own experience and how you end up having to process through it again, because it's kind of a new thing to realize all of that through mm. a different lens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think uh, um, an example, you know, you were mentioning in that interview um, about when you reached the age of your youth pastor and that question of like, how could he have believed this or thought this or preached this, you know, when, um, but a, another example you know, I, I'm <clears throat> I'm not a biological parent myself of anyone, but if I ever have a kid of my own to think like if I had in that background the abuse of 
let's say, for instance, if my parents had subscribed to the Pearl's method of um, of, of raising up a, a child, um, and I sit there holding my own kid and looking at my, my own kid and thinking, how? How do the, I mean, for, for me, the Bergs, uh, Jim, Jim Berg and, and his wife notoriously taught that immediately, the, the, as soon as your child starts to cry, you are supposed to break the, the will of that child. Um, and that involved spanking as much as possible until that child stops crying, um, which is impossible to do, but that is what they taught. That's what they espoused. Um, I can't like right now, I can't imagine doing that, but even more so if I were to have a kid of my own looking at that kid thinking, who Who does this? Who does this? Why is this considered normal? You know? Uh, And I know, I know why they, they think that, but it, it's still, yeah, it's, it's something else. Um, Yeah. Parenting changes a lot of, it's again, it's one of those things like travel, you know, I've been lucky in life to travel to a lot mm-hmm. of different countries, you know, and so it alters your perspective immensely. Mm-hmm. And I, and I always say like travel is kind of like it, it, it like fast tracks your maturity in a lot of ways. Cause you have to see people in different lights. Like it's not a, you know, even, you know, when, when the Trump election cycle was happening, you know, like the conversations I would hear about, you know, Muslims, you know, and it's like, well, I've been in Muslim majority countries in a back. And, and then you're seeing posts from people. You're like, you've never met a Muslim person yeah. in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's obvious. It, yeah. it changes the perspective. Yeah. And, um, and it's the same with parenting. Like, you know, I mean, the first time that we got pregnant, like, you know, I was very much in this very John Piper, like heavy Calvinistic view. Mm. And, you know, going through child loss with that perspective is a difficult thing to grapple with. Um, but it also gives you a sense of security. That's like, it's not real, but it's, it, it's just a weird experience. And then, you know, with our second child, it's like, again, yeah, you're going through that. And as she hits milestones that I remember, and I think of my context, you just sit there and go like, how did the adults who were my age, not see these things as an issue. So mm-hmm. there's constantly, like you said, beautifully, like there's different lenses, how you view the past. It's, it's, it's heavy, but it's also like, thank goodness I didn't know then. Cause I would have been way more traumatized by some of this stuff. It's just a weird, it's all weird. It's, it's just such a hard thing to grapple with. Cause like you can sit there and find things to be angry about all day, but also it's your life. So you take it, for what it was and, you know, break the cycles where you can and mm-hmm. know that you're probably messing up something else that your kids will be unpacking later on. You know, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to work through. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, it's, it's as much as we can be like, how, how did our parents, how, how we also know, yeah, they, they were probably doing the best with what they had. And we've learned a lot through even, yeah. man, I just think of like the technology that's available now, like how we're able to research and look up and find out mm-hmm. information that yeah. wasn't available before. Like I feel like I've said, maybe I've said this before on our podcast, but pastors used to hold so many more, so much more authority because it was like, you couldn't check them as easily, you know, whereas, mm-hmm. and back, especially in our parents' days, right? Like it was like, well, that how do you know? That, Unless that you get a cassette tape of another pastor, you know, like right. you're really, truly locked into what they're telling you you know yeah yeah it was easier to create an ecosystem back then and i feel like 
probably the breakdown of evangelical Christianity, the ex-evangelical slash deconstruction movement has been like fast paced, not just by the election of Trump, but also by the access to information that people have to actually research, learn, figure things out. If people are already questioning things, there's so much more that they can get their hands on to start learning about all those connections and the stuff that's yeah behind a lot of it. So. Right. Oh, I, I, you mentioned something when you were sharing, uh, in, you know, just the Calvinist movement and the comfort it provided you. I, you, you don't have to answer this. Could delete it out, but I, feel free to go if you don't want to answer it. We'll skip. Um, but you mentioned lose child loss and how it provided comfort to be inside of Calvinism. Um, would you care to share a bit about how that affected your faith? How, like your worldview and what what that experience did for you in terms of your maturity and what you were kind of where you were at? Yeah, I mean, I think for me at the time, I framed all of it as you know, well, the chief end of man is to glorify God. You know, like that was kind of the the battle cry. So, like everything could be explained as this somehow glorifies Him. We don't understand it, but it ultimately does. And so we can praise God in every situation. And I say often, like there's comfort in the black and white, you know, like I think that's, Mm -hmm. there's a reason fundamentalism is popular and it's because it answers all the questions for you. And, you know, even the answer of we don't understand it, but God does, it's a, it's a coverall for anything that doesn't make sense. And so for me, it was, you know, which I think there, many things can be true. So I don't I don't believe this the way that I'm saying it, but it's a beautiful thing to believe that everything has a higher purpose that's outside mm-hmm. of our understanding. And that is a comforting thing. However, I also think it enables a lot of times us to brush over things that we need to unpack on a deeper level and allow ourselves to feel emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so you know, basically when that situation happened, we were living in India at the time as missionaries. Um, I don't want to say missionaries. We were living in India at the time and I was basically a donor communication person with the orphanage. So I was taking pictures and sending them back. Here's the construction project update, you know, please support, which I think honestly, out of all the horror missionary stories, I don't regret the things that I did because I think it actually benefited in a lot of ways. Um, All that to say, so we were in India, we were going through that. We're reconciling or we're doing everything we can to live for God. This thing happened and we're going, Oh, it's for his glory. On the flip side of that, I was heavily studying demonology and was very deep into that rabbit hole. And, um, you know, I, for a long time, blamed myself for having the miscarriage because a few days before I had visited a temple in India and I felt like I had brought something back with me that was, or had lured a demonic attack on us. So like it was a, when I look at that period of my life, I was in such a whirlpool of theological ideas and trying to grapple with good, evil, higher purposes, my place, like I was so far beyond just the simple biblical teaching of rain falls on the just and the unjust. Like there's some really bad things that happen in life, which I think also would have been comforting. And instead I was in this constant wrestling of extreme responsibility on my end and feeling immense shame and guilt while also going, well, there's nothing I can do. God wanted all of this to happen. Like, and why it was just such a mess 
And, you know, again, it's stuff in the moment. I took a very like comforted approach from like, there's a higher purpose. And I tried to like focus on that more than like the shame and the pain I was feeling. But up until really up until I, I mean, officially like stepped out of Christianity, like I carried this weight and shame of like, maybe that was me. You know, which Even is the sense yeah. that you carried a demon back with you would be a sense of control of like, it yeah. just random that your child died. Like yeah. you somehow had, it, it was done because you did something. Right. You had mm. a part to play. So it's sort yeah. of a, it's you're still involved black and in white. Mm-hmm. And there's something, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's not random. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the messaging coming back from the, you know, mission field, I hate using all these words, but coming back from the mission field, you know, mm-hmm. the terminology I would get from people you know, cause we left shortly after that, but like people would say, well, God's really going to bless you for how you handled this. Or, you know, sometimes God, you know, the cliches, like the God gives his, yeah. you know, God gives his biggest battles to his strongest Oof. soldiers and like all Oof. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, what, like, what is it? Like, what are we doing? Like it's, it's on the one hand, it's like, if you're faithful, God's going to bless you, but we were, and he didn't, if you, you know, it's a, I have another side saying, you know, God's will be done no matter what, you know, rain falls on the just and the unjust. Then these people saying, you know, it's a test, but I'm already doing everything right that they told me to do. It was just such a mess. And like, there was no, there was no empathy. It was just always, what's the theological answer to this? You know, and, and literally I remember calling one of the ministry leaders the day it happened and he, you know, and I'm crying and I'm on the phone and I'm saying what happened. And he literally said, how's your wife? Is she upset? Is she not going to want to do missions work anymore? Like the priority was so much like stay on mission, stay on mission. And, you know, and all that on the background is like, what is the mission? Am I doing it right? Do I understand all the theological framework that makes this make sense? Because right now it just feels like nothing makes sense. It's like, it was such a cluster and it's like, it's where, again, it's like you're unpacking that forever, you know, like, and that's the stuff now, whether it's that, whether it's the abuse stories, whether it's like the interactions I've had growing up, like it's, if I don't, if I don't address it, like consciously, like the subconscious hum, like I said, is this trauma. It's like, it's like your default framework, no matter how far removed you are, is, I'm headed to hell. The world is, Mm -hmm. is this, these people are this to you. Like they do so good at making your default programming, just be all these kind of catch all theological phrases. And so like, like I said, the black and white, super comforting. And we start stepping into the gray at all. It's like terrifying. It's like, where does Mm -hmm. anything go? Cause nothing seems to fit. And I definitely don't fit in this. I think when you use the word empathy, that was the piece that I was like, oh, when I think of the Calvinist movement and I think of like one of the hardest pieces, it's, it seems to be just to be allowed to feel, <laughs> just to be allowed to be like, this sucks and there's no answer and there's nothing you could say that's going to patch mm-hmm. this up and I'm allowed to be sad and I'm allowed to be angry and there's room for all of my feelings. I feel like that world just has really callous sort of, yeah, unempathetic ways of dealing with people who are in pain, like that whole... <laughs> comment towards your wife it just kind of highlights sort of just the inhumanity almost of, yeah. of how you approach people right it's all god it's all this other greater purpose but if you're injured here in the now well 
Yeah. Yeah. Something's wrong with you. There's no, there's no, just no space to be like, I'm human. And (laughs) you're not going to give me an answer that's going to make me okay with this scenario. Like this doesn't make sense. And yeah, yeah, I don't, maybe I don't want this to be for God's glory. And I don't want bonus points for going through this scenario. It just sucks. You know, like just stop. Babe, don't you remember? What is the chief end of man? Yeah. Well, it's (laughs) where where I I was drawn immensely to John Piper during that time in Mm -hmm. that, I love that it was this approach to it where you can find joy. And I love that there was that, that hedonistic Christianity as he calls it, like, you know, and at the time, again, that was a very comforting thing of like, well, everything is meant for our joy and his glory. And like, that's, you know, there was something beautiful again to that while also like now I look at it and go, that doesn't make sense in every context. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one to work out. And, and also like, you know, the Calvinistic side gave the, this is a whole nother rabbit trail, but I'll just say it. So it's out there, but you know, like even to this day, I think the only, the only, and I sound very fundamentalist saying this, the only (laughs) sensible reading of scripture and a God figure is, it has to be a Calvinistic approach, you know, like, and I think God has to be in control of everything or nothing, you know, or he ceases to be God, I still, that's, that's how I view the reading of scripture. And it's one of those things where you start grappling with the question of, okay, either God is able to stop it and is unwilling to, or he is willing to stop it, but he's unable to. Like, it starts really fast tracking that kind of deconstruction process to where, like there's some truly immoral things that happen. And if God is able to stop them, he becomes immoral himself. Like those questions, there's not an answer. Like Calvinism just says, God, whatever he does is good because he's the source of all good. The IFB says like, we definitely play a responsible part. When you start crossing those streams, like <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. it's like your brain goes in a blender, you know, but anyway, I'll say all that. And now on to the next question, you know, like leave that, <laughs> leave that branch hanging there. You know? um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think that, I think you bring up a lot of good points. Um, and, and yeah, I think there, there are, um, there are certainly some avenues to, to tackle some of the, you know, the historicity of, of the texts themselves and the context in which those sacred texts, supposedly sacred texts were written. Um, But I think, yeah, for the modern day American evangelical uh, Christian, those questions should be at the front of, uh, of our minds, given the way that our churches function and the, and the things that our pastors preach, even in those, those churches and those theologies that don't espouse either the, the heavy-handed Calvinism, the, you know, God is sovereign and everything that is happening in the world is God's judgment and, and wrath, uh, the Jonathan Edwards style, or the um, the fundamentalist approach. Uh, even if, if, if your church is not in or doesn't subscribe to any of those belief systems, you're left with um, certain... Very, very, yeah, very basic, very difficult questions to face when you're in that evangelical framework, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because God, like, like you said, I mean, even the, the last evangelical church that I was in, Hillsong, they wrote all of these songs about God, you know, 
God's throne being whatever. And like, I'm trying to think of some of the lyrics there. That was a good uh, one. Hey, God's throne bye. being whatever was my favorite hill song. <laughs> exactly. Jam. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, God they have four this- words a song, bro. You can't remember the four words in a song. You know, repeated. religious trauma causes people to block yeah, things out. That's, I'll give him that. That's He's true. Probably the earth. Just here like- we go. The earth will shake and tremble before him. Chains will break as heaven and earth sing. Holy is the one. Eric, you're going to get these songs stuck in his head. They're so repetitive. He's going to be singing them tonight, going to bed, going, Eric, Eric, why did you do this to me? Why did you make me remember the words? It it, it bothers me sometimes because I'm like, I'll have a song that I'm like, man, that song's so good. I have no desire to listen to this song. But also, they had some albums that ripped. So so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for acknowledging that. We we had uh, somebody, you know, a... Cut somewhat friend acquaintance in the podcasting world who, yeah. who came on and um he came from the he came from Mars Hill. His story was how he brought down uh Mars Hill Church. And I I love his work, love everything uh that he says, but he's that kind of musician that really loved to kind of hate on uh on Hillsong. And I'm like, but there's a reason those albums went yeah. like double platinum the, multiple times. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. I Christians like, are simple people. It's, they want some easy to follow. That's music. like being okay, like nothing too right. complicated. It's like being like Mission Impossible is lame, you know, because Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. It's like no Mission Impossible yeah. is freaking awesome. <laughs> Tom Cruise yeah, exactly. is a psychopath. You know, it's like many things can be true. Okay, like it's exactly. Like, you know, exactly. Anyway. <clears throat> so. Anyway, yeah, moving on. Um, I I want to kind of touch on um, the the next step in this journey, and uh, at least how I've sort of perceived it, and listening to your podcast and and seeing you in other media. So your work on the podcast then kind of got you in touch with a production company that was doing a documentary series on the IFB. I was like, are we going to get to the movie? Yeah, we're gonna get to the movie. We're gonna get to the movie. <laughs> um. This documentary series is called Let Us Pray, and I Very highly... Very clever title, by the way. Pray, yes. Let Us Pray, P-R-E-Y. Yeah. You know. I, I highly recommend it to... Uh, I, the, the, with the caveat that there's some very, very, very heavy, heavy material in here. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of content and trigger warnings for anybody watching this, but um, I, I do recommend it if you have the stomach for uh, very difficult stories. Um, <clears throat> could... How how did it? Um, I guess the question I have is: How did it make you feel to discover that uh, somebody was about to produce an expose of the type of church that you were a part of? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and so I got reached out to by the production company in 2020. So I was about, I, I think I was probably nine months into the show, and this production company reached out. It was not the first production company to reach out, but they were the first that seemed actually really legit. And they reached out and said, Hey, we're working on this. Can we just ask you some questions? We're just trying to do some research. Um, I found out later they were, they had been working since like 2019 already. So like they were Mm. already about a year in, they were focused on one church and a specific abuse story, which was Ruthie's in the documentary and had gone and filmed like those early things, like the meeting and some of the early blind eye stuff. And they reached out 2020, we sat down for about two hours on zoom and they just asked me questions about like, they had a huge stack of paper. They're like, who's Jack Hiles? Who's this? What is this church? What is swallowing goldfish? They were so obsessed with that. Like, what is this? What is the, (laughs) you know, what couldn't you do? What could you do? Bible translations, David Hiles, like uh, my background asked a ton of questions, disappeared for a couple months 
came back, hey, can we record a conversation with you to give to the network at the time who was going to produce it? And so we interviewed for two hours over Zoom. They sent it along with footage from Ruthie's story and maybe a couple others and basically made like a mock pilot that they sold to the production company. And I kind of forgot about it. A couple months went by and then, hey, can you fly out to Kansas City, Missouri? And so I flew out there. That's when I did that interview with Ruthie that you see in the documentary. Like, mm-hmm. And then a couple months later, I'm flying to California to go do a protest at, that you see at Faith Baptist in Wildemar and then in Michigan to go to the sentencing. So like, it was just always idling in the background. And so I was keeping a secret for like two and a half years about this project that's going. And the way I felt during the process was like a lot of fear that like, it was excitement that they were not, the filmmakers were not part of the IFB ever. So they were outsiders. So they would see the things that insiders kind of take for granted. All the little weird things that like we brush over in conversation and people go, what? Back up, say that again. I was nervous because they were outside the movement. So I was worried they were going to get the circles wrong. They weren't going to understand the beliefs. They were going to miscommunicate. It was going to just be a mess. And anyway, the series came out. That was not the case. I think it's the best possible version of what it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the the thing I said to the director after I watched it was, this is validating. Like, to see these stories presented in a way that is given compassion, but also a very journalistic approach. Like it's not brushing anything anywhere under, it's not whitewashing anything. It's a very just black and white kind of look at this um, is validating, but also going back to Eric in high school, who feels like the people he loves the most aren't listening to then see, Oh, we're number seven on HBO max and the world is listening. And I'm seeing people tweet about these things, things that I never thought would see the light of day was extremely powerful. Like it, to, to see it all come together was like validating is the word. It's the best word I can think of to really sum up how I feel about it. Um, mm. And that must you be know. so cool after all the work oh, that you yeah. put in doing so many interviews with people. Yeah. And to have an, a side tangent I wanted to go on because I've watched a lot of these documentaries that are, you know, Hillsong exposés. And I mean, I'm fascinated. I've been fascinated for a long, even before I was, when I was still evangelical, I liked studying cults, not realizing evangelicalism is a high control, high authority group that could fall under that category pretty easily. But, you know, I would look into the IFB world or this or that or Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, you know, I was like checking out all this stuff. And now that I'm, I've left evangelicalism unpacking, you know, the world of Hillsong and how that came apart, listening to Christianity's today's, um, you know, the rise and fall of of Mars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just listening to all the different stories and going through it and, and seeing it. One of the things that I end up getting frustrated by as I watch these, one of those flaws I see happening over and over again is sometimes the way men take the narrative, grab the story, take over, talk over the women who are harmed in those situations. Um, you know, I've seen that happen in many of many of those 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 t- retellings. And when I saw you in the documentary, there's some stuff that really stood out to me as a man. You thought, oh my God, here he is. He's going to take, had, here he is. I, it's going to ruin the whole thing. I had to take a breath. I did. <laughs> I, and to be honest, I did have that moment of, oh, here we go. Here's the white guy to help to help us, you know, to talk over, right? And and so that we can all know the the, the perspective we're supposed to have. Mansplaining to, what all the women oh, are saying the whole it time. It happens mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. much. It's it's usually a part of these these things. And I, I just watch it. Even, even – even in situations where the guy doesn't 
uh, take over everyone's stories and is the narrative we're supposed to listen to everything to. Sometimes they throw a guy in who has nothing to do with anything and you're like, why is this face yeah. talking about this topic? He has nothing yep. to do with this. And it, it happens a lot. So, you know, I did have like held my breath when I saw you, but I really noticed something different when it came to you talking. You did not overtake anyone's story. You did not, you know, it wasn't like you were the the voice now of what we're supposed to know. You weren't, um, there's like a deliberateness about how you were brought into this that didn't, it didn't upset me in the way my feminism usually gets triggered by the way guys are put into these <laughs> sure. stories. There was a sort of respectfulness that you, these women were to be centered. And the stuff you were saying was out of, and you know, knowing the history you have now, it makes even more sense to me. Yeah. Um, the 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 tone you had, the approach you had, um, of not of you probably being on that page as a man of not wanting to override their stories, and you know, feeling like you held back a lot of your own story in order to make sure they stayed front and center. Yeah. And um, and even the stuff that you talked about, it was informative. You know, I was right. like, oh, he's not that guy brought in who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, but they just bring him in because we need a white guy to help us know what yeah, the truth and, right. and the way is. It didn't feel like, you know, your experience in it, you were able to articulate the points that were necessary to, to support them in yeah. telling their story rather than to over... Power. So I found that really refreshing and nice. As I was, I, do you have thoughts in terms of how it was handled yeah. with regard to the women, with regard to the directors, the producers? Yeah. Well, one. I mean, one of the first things the production company is female run. So like everybody, I think except for like the boom operator on like one of the days, like everybody on the on the crew and the production side from the director, executive producer, like they were all female and like intentionally so. Sound person was, um, and so you know, the female gaze is on this project, you know, for film nerds out there like that, that female POV is there, which I think is really cool. And I think it's important, you know, because I think there's perspective there, even talking to the director after and like some of the things she was thinking about, like she said, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted the sound person to be a woman because she's going to be miking these women up. She's going to be the most close contact with them. She's going to be listening to the intonation of their voice. Like, it was something where it was a learning process for me, but then with me coming in, you know, my biggest fear was I knew, I don't know how many women total there are just cause I haven't counted them, I, but I knew with the exception of like four people, I knew the people in the series. So like I knew Rachel, I knew Kathy, I knew April. I'd had long conversations with them um, about these topics and I knew how horrific their stories were, how they were treated. And so I was nervous and expressed that I was nervous to be in a lineup of like people that are legit survivors. And I don't feel comfortable even being included in that club, though <laughs> sometimes they include me in that club. Like I just, I was a guy in that movement. I benefited more than I was hurt by it in the immediate experience with it. And so. I was nervous it was going to be like, oh, their story. Then like, what's this guy doing here? Because like, even the story I just shared, I don't think really fit the way the documentary was put together. And so they did when they interviewed me, they recorded like my entire backstory. I named names of my church and background, like a little bit of that made the extended cuts on investigation discovery. But like the director told me, she's like, Eric, we cut, we had to cut for time. And most of it's your backstory. And part of me was like, because I feel like, it just wouldn't have fit. It would have been really weird. I think given mm -hmm. Rachel's story, Kathy's story, like all these stories you've seen, Amanda Householder's story. Um, and so I think leaving me in as kind of the like connector 
where it's like, hey, here's how Amanda's story connects to Kathy's. Like, here's a tease of how this goes to this. I really appreciated that perspective. And I feel like it it let, again, them be front and center because they have the actual abuse story. And it let me be like the boring history info stuff. I got to be there. And I think that's like my strong point anyway. So like it was... Mm-hmm. I didn't feel disempowered for the sake of their empowerment. I felt like we all had a set role in the series and everybody got to shine in their, in their own perspective, you know, parts. Um, it was, I, I feel really good about it. And I feel like I said, it's the best version of what it could have been. You know, could there be lots more? Absolutely. And yeah, hopefully, I can imagine there hopefully could be. there yeah. is, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know, I've said it before, like perfection is not when there's nothing left to add. It's when there's nothing left to take away. Like there's really mm-hmm. nothing I would change about the documentary as it sits. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I think everyone was given the proper amount of support to shine in their own yeah. role, you know? Yeah. Um, so I want to take a little bit of a detour into the history of the IFB. And I'm curious because um, there were there were some comments in the documentary series that sort of um, surprised me. And the way the reason that it surprised me wasn't that I felt there were inaccuracies. It was more like, huh, that that doesn't jive with what I recall. Or maybe there are gaps in my own knowledge. And, and to be fair, I'm not an IFB historian and I didn't like really dive all that heavily into mm-hmm. it. Aside from, you know, when I left, I was following, um, Daryl Dow's uh, website for a yeah. while. Um, <clears throat> and then I got involved in, uh, quite a few of the BJU survivor groups, um, pretty soon after, uh, I left the IFB world, but I still, I, I, I wanted to move on. I wanted to, I was getting excited about the new style of Christianity, yeah, quote unquote, sure. where I could, you know, have rock bands and stuff. Um, Wear so, jeans to church. <clears throat> Woo. Exciting. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. <laughs> young, restless and reformed, ready to take on the world. Now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, um, so I was sort of, I guess my interest was peaked in, uh, I don't remember if it was you doing the narration at this point, but there were, discussing kind of some of the roots and and focal points and starting starting points of the IFB and it all kind of hinges on the the person of Jack Hiles. Now, I'm not saying that is or isn't factual, but I'm curious given my own experience with IFB and the connections that my church had. Uh, my church was pretty squarely in the Bob Jones lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we were IFB, but I, I only remember, um, first Baptist of Hammond as sort of the butt end of a joke of how extreme those people are, um, as if we weren't (laughs) ourselves, but, um, you know, I mean, we were part of different groups that probably would have brushed, rubbed shoulders with a lot of these, uh, a lot of these groups, like the American Association of Christian Schools, um, and even Pensacola Christian College was sending ministry teams to us as well. So it's not like they weren't outside of our orbit. But um, do you have any thoughts? I don't know if, if you're able to to kind of fit things together. I'm curious myself, how does Bob Jones fit into this, especially since uh, BJU as an institution kind of predates um, Jack Hiles and, and First Baptist? Where where do all of these things kind of kind of come together? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the independent fundamental Baptist background, I think, um, and for those who want to really deep dive, I did two videos with a Presbyterian, um, 
talking about early IFB roots. So we go back to like, I mean, 1800s and start <laughs> really mm. diving in. So, and this is something people brought up is, is Jack Hiles is listed as the founder of the IFB. And so I, people go like, is that's not really true. And I go, it is technically. So okay. J Frank Norris is kind of like the big name you could go to before that, who like really, uh, there's a book called The Shooting Salvationist that really dives into his story. But J. Frank Norris and, you know, I mean, there's John R. Wright. Like, there's a lot of people that really were, like, the the starting points of the IFB. The way that I described Jack Hiles in my interview fully, there was a section of the interview where I talked about Jack Hiles. And um, I described him as, like, the Walt Disney of fundamentalism. And so I think IFB churches like independent fundamental Baptist churches existed. Like they were around and they would say they existed because Jesus was one, you know, but, but <laughs> yeah, they existed yeah. in like, he's, the, he read the, he read right. the King James he wore Bible a suit, and spoke English, you know, yeah. super chill and short hair. <laughs> and so, you know, the independent fundamental Baptist churches, you can go back to like 1800s and, you know, maybe even a little earlier, like they existed. IFB as a brand, like the IFB, like the people that care about connections and circles, I think that starts with Jack Hiles. Like, and people can mm. debate me on that, but I, I personally, whether they like him or not, whether he's the butt end of a joke, which he has become in many circles in the IFB, his impact is unmistakable. The same way I would say, like, Pensacola is far removed from Peter Ruckman, but not really. Like, his okay. influence is heavily on the curriculum and the founders of Pensacola. So like with Bob Jones, I think the reason that Bob Jones feels so separated and you might know more as a Bob Jones grad, Mm -hmm. I think it's because Bob Jones was focused on intellectualism, like, and for whatever reason, I think because their college and their, whoever the people were, they were hiring, like they were more on the intelligence side. They tended to be more focused on, history and like little Mm -hmm. things like that, that affect your perceptions of Christianity. And so I think the more you move toward intellectualism, you kind of push aside Jack Hiles and the emotionalism side of things. But I think when you look at like the quirks of Bob Jones, the dress standards, the like, I think there's a direct ripple effect from Hiles brand Christianity, like that, Mm -hmm. that 1950s, 60s, explosion of conservative Christianity. Um, And so whether people want to give him props or not, I think that his influence is there on every IFB church in some way, whether it's bus ministry, like bus ministry alone is Hiles. Like that starts there, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think getting into the anti-Calvinistic rhetoric, like that kind of stuff, like that's all heavily rooted in him. So again, I look at him as like the guy that made the IFB, the mainstream monolith that it kind of became, um, mm-hmm. you know, has, is his power or influence the same now? No. Um, I mean, he's been dead since 2001. So, yeah. uh, you know, it would be hard to maintain it, but again, the influence is there even for the guys like Paul Chapel that don't mention him as much now, or Bob Jones that would say, well, we're not staunchly King James, you know, now or Pensacola or whoever you want to fill in the blank with. I think that's kind of where I put him. I, I do wish that was in the series a little bit like that Walt Disney line specifically, because I think that's yeah. how I view him as like, oh, I'm going to take uh, much like Ray Kroc with McDonald's. It's like it existed, 
but now it's McDonald's, you know, like that's kind of where I put him in that. So, yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. And it, it totally jives with kind of my, my perspective. I think also there's, there's the added layer of Bob Jones himself not being Baptist. Right. Um, <clears throat> despite the fact that not that far into the future of the, you know, the, um, the building of Bob Jones college and Bob Jones university, Baptist theology just ran through yeah. the place. It, it, um, Bob Jones too is kind of, and I think they would probably say it like Bob Jones is also the most tentative IFB associated mm-hmm. college, like in terms of, and I would say this is kind of like, they're very much connected, but like, they're also, they were so much an institution unto themselves in yes. a lot of ways where the same way, like Jerry Falwell used to be in very tight with the IFB world, but mm-hmm. Liberty university now is so radically a separate camp and it's become like Liberty university is its own. They've had their own coverage as well. Like they're very much Mm -hmm. their own thing that's happened. But like, if you trace the roots back, there was so much political alignment, especially during the eighties with all of these groups where it's like, we are united because we're Republican. We're, we're connected in these areas, segregation conversation. Like there was so much that brought them together Mm-hmm. And, you know, now, even though you don't see the connections, like, like Falwell, you know, like he can be the laughing stock of IFB people, but Falwell's roots are very much in this IFB kind of world, you know? So it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's why it's, like I said, it's why I was nervous about somebody on the outside piecing all this together. Cause there's a lot of shit to get just washed off to the side. That's important, you know, but. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I think I think even in the future, you know, you're you're mentioning the possibility of some some more stuff coming out. Uh, you know, um, fingers crossed, knock on wood, all of that. Um, but I think there's also opportunity. Look, Bob Jones University has its own massive sets of scandals. I mean, back in 2014, we had the Grace Report that came mm-hmm. out, 300 pages documenting the way that Bob Jones University handles sexual abuse and that barely scratches the surface because of the way that the grace report was handled. Um, not a lot of people came forward. And yet when you look at the sheer numbers, that was a lot of people who came forward, but percentage wise, that doesn't even touch the kinds of abuses that went on at that school and within that school's orbit. So I think there's opportunity for people to pick up the mantle. I think, um, Bob Jones is a little bit of a tougher one because of how, secretive they really are um and they don't wear their extremism on their sleeves quite the way that first baptist of hammond might Um, right they yeah they like to pretend that they are above the fray even though it's so obvious that so much is kind of the engine is the same yeah and and Mm -hmm. it is you know i mean i think of bob jones the third um mm-hmm. you know going on larry king and being confronted yep. about segregation and he's like we changed the rule today and it's like it's yep. very right now yeah, <laughs> yeah he's like really this today you did yeah today yep. so coincidental you know and it's like mm-hmm. it's like yeah it, it, it's it's interesting covering places like bob jones even first baptist now although uh, you know with the new leadership he's very quiet and calm versus the explosive jack scott jack hiles like mm-hmm. yelling like he's very calm and soft-spoken paul chapel in lancaster very soft-spoken or not, not soft-spoken very ceo um very we deal with things kind of approach mm-hmm. like and so whatever version of that you get 
you know, I keep saying to people privately, it's like, it's like a gas leak versus an explosion. Like the gas leak will kill you. The soft spoken guys that are very secretive will kill you. The explosion will kill you too. One just makes a bigger noise. And I think Mm -hmm. like the scops and the Hiles were a big explosion that was easy to identify. Like those guys are insane, but like Mm -hmm. the Bob Jones where it's like, you know, to be an interracial couple, you have to sign a secretive permission slip from, you know, like that kind of stuff. It's like almost more nefarious because it's Mm -hmm. harder to see it. You know, it's just a very weird, again, it's very weird to track all that stuff down. Um, you know, in the new, that's, that's the example I give between evangelicalism and fundamentalism is that, you know, fundamentalists tell you we hate the gays we hate the women patriarchy's great like they'll just state it all up front mm-hmm. be like this is god's way evangelicals will say all are welcome yeah you know yeah. uh women you find out valued. once you're in yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. it's all hidden it's like yeah. underneath layers and mm-hmm. layers of of we have a woman pastor and then you yeah. dig a little bit like but they don't really have much of a say and <sighs> They're it's because they're married to that other dude who's a pastor and yeah. because, yep. and only in yep. certain roles and they only go so so high. Right. Yep, yep. Yeah, I I think it's it's worth noting and I just you know briefly want to touch on the fact that you know you were talking about how back in 2011 um, these kinds of stories this was the Catholic Church right this is what mm-hmm. what we heard coming from from them and <clears throat> even me when I was hearing these stories I was working as a, as a children's pastor at the time in uh, a Mark Driscoll style church. And I remember thinking, no, but we have safeguards in our churches. You know, we're doing X, Y, and Z. I have these programs, background checks, whatever. This isn't going to happen to us. We're different. Um, And then you have, you know, Sarah Smith's whole series of articles in the, the Fort Worth star telegram you have. And, and that's, you know, about the, the IFB, you know, then you have uh, the Grace Report out of Bob Jones University. You have the Southern Baptist Convention and the two newspapers that are um, pointing out that around almost 400 clergy and leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention had sexually abused over 700 victims. Um, and then similarly, in 2021, 2022, and following Hillsong Church, which is the largest brand, at least was the largest brand at the time in um, mainstream evangelicalism gets hit with one scandal after another, after another. I myself um, was a part of Hillsong NYC and I saw the, the, the report at Hillsong NYC and that's harrowing multiple reports of sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and a culture that, that was created by our former lead pastor that not only swept this stuff under the rug, but promoted people who were um, who had these allegations out against them. I'm curious, what do you think is at the heart of these abuses? Do you think that something within Christianity, Christian theology is to blame? Do you think it has something to do with the men that tend to be pastors and leaders in these environments? Um, I've, you know, like round, round table, like everybody, you know, if you want to weigh in, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I think the root so the biggest naysayers of what i do will say abuse happens everywhere Mm -hmm. um and it does where Mm -hmm. you know if you have 100 people in a room somebody's a creep somebody's a you know abusive somebody like the numbers that's what happens human beings are human beings my focus is on systems that empower those individuals and so you know it's i've said to many many pastors i've talked to your responsibility is not 
you know, oh, somebody abused someone in your church, like that's your fault because it's going to happen. If you have a ministry for 50 years, you'll have these cases. You'll have to call authorities. Like you'll have to, like there will be things that happen. You become responsible with how you handle these situations and how you handle the situations fires a beacon into the air that tells victims in your church what you think about victims and tells abusers in the community what you think about abusers. And, you know, I think the reason you see churches have seven, eight, nine, ten 10 abusers in one of the churches I just am dealing with now in 15 years, they had 15 different abusers. Um, you know, like that happens because you're sending out a particular message. Now, what is the message? I think you can get into conversations about purity culture, which, you know, disempowers women. You can get into conversations about toxic masculinity in the church, which empowers male, you know, abusers. You can dive into all of that kind of stuff. I think ultimately, though, the reason abuse happens is because of imbalance of power. And I think a misunderstanding of how to identify powerful or or power hungry, abusive men. And so with that, I think the answer is just education. So I think it's understanding. uh, And there's a great book by Dr. Brian Kloss uh, called um, Corruptible. Um, And the whole study of the book is how horrible people are disproportionately drawn to power and disproportionately good at getting it. I think Mm -hmm. you see that within the church as well. Um, If you look at church as a business, which most evangelical churches run like businesses, um, you're going to see the same things happen that happen within corrupt organizations like Weinstein's production company, like Mm -hmm. bad people and aggressive people and angry people are labeled driven visionary. Um, They are looked at as uh, game changers. They look at it as radical to steal David Platt's kind of label. Hmm. And so the most toxic narcissistic people tend to get themselves into lead pastoral positions very, very quickly um, because they're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Um, when there's a position of power, like you see the the man of God or the pastor within a church, um, that's a position of extreme authority. And um, I think it all boils down to the fact that when you have someone and there's a role where you get to be the mouthpiece of God and you get to have control over hundreds of people, only two types of people want that job. The first type of person is the person who sees an opportunity to do extreme benevolent good. So people that see with this power, I can truly help people. Um, and again, you could draw parallels to people that want to become police officers or in the military. I can help people. I can change lives. I can save people. So you get like that extreme martyr complex, like the good guy that will do anything to help others. The other more common is I get to be the mouth of God. People will do whatever I want and I can lead people to meet my needs, whether it's financial, sexual, physical, or, you know, whatever you want to label under that. And so I think we just need to work on, you know, is it Christianity specifically? No. Islam has its share of problems. Is it, um, you know, is it the political association? No. I mean, we see issues across the spectrum. I think the biggest issue is that churches are functioning at such a large level where they're, where victims are seen as liabilities and the, you know, the Mark Driscoll approach, it's like, you need to help move the bus forward or we're going to throw you under the bus. Like that is a necessity that comes out of an organization being way too big for its own britches and men given so much power that they're scared to lose. And so I think the system really is set up to really mess up people who question it 
Um, and again, the, the victims become too big a liability to a machine that needs a certain amount of money to run. They have multi-million dollar mortgages. They've got a guy who's getting a lot of benefits, whether their name is on a lot of properties, whether their payroll is actually that big, like the amount of control and power they have over an unlimited amount of resources is, I mean, that'll turn some people really bad who maybe weren't in the beginning. Um, and people that are already bad, it's like open season for them. So Mm. that's kind of, that's a lot of words, but like, um, the books I would recommend on this topic that go deep is like Brian Kloss, the book corruptible will change how you view politics, religion, and all of the above. Um, Chuck DeGroat's book, when narcissism comes to church, you know, helps identify this stuff as well. Um, but like you could dive deep on any area, like, just teaching on women alone, you could spend hours and hours dissecting how that leaves so many vulnerable to abuse. Um, but yeah, there's layer after layer of it. Yeah, there's, I feel like that this is a question that could go in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. One that popped into my head right away was uh, in terms of church being different than, let's say, secular environment mm-hmm. would be forgiveness and how that plays a role in terms of shutting people up. In terms of making you feel bad for mm-hmm. talking about the truth, uh, exposing abuse, bringing uh, – <laughs> you talked about – sorry, my head's jumping all over the place. But, you know, checks and balances in the Christian world you were bringing up before, Nate. But I was thinking of, you know, mm-hmm. in, in in a lot of churches in Canada – I don't know if they have this in the States, but they'd had an organization called Plan to Protect that was um, – it was insurance companies mandated churches to have this to kind of provide safeguards. <laughs> in order to provide insurance, you needed to have some sort of teaching yeah. training. And uh, in one church that I had uh, that I'd been in, the two people listed on the plan to protect contacts, one had abused the other, and I was just like, "It's just it was um, yeah. it was one of those things where I'm like, yeah, no, a lot of the other teachings in the in these environments when it comes to forget how people are shut up, how people are made to." Um, be quiet. How how you're taught you gossip if you share your story. Mm-hmm. Like some people mm-hmm. don't even know that someone close to them has gone through this sort of abuse from the pastor or from a, because you're not supposed to. So you're a bad Christian for bringing up these conversations. You're bitter. You're gossip. Like there's a certain Christian language that's used to um, promote that that dynamic yeah. you were talking about that unhealthy power authority structure. You know there's. There's a lot of lingo that in the secular world wouldn't fly. You wouldn't use those to. Yeah, yeah. you just say different just, vocabulary. You'd say, "Are you a com- <laughs> are you a company man? Are you, you know, a team player? are you a team Maybe. player? Yeah, are yeah. you? Yeah. You know, like it's it's all the same stuff. It's just it's just different. And I think the layer in Christian circles is that it's just backed by like deity. So mm-hmm. like when you're going, you know, I mean, the question, like I said, like I instantly realized something was wrong in the IFB. But I also was dealing with the weight of, if I get this next question wrong, I go to hell forever. Like, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of... And and again, it goes back to that thing, people listening who maybe don't come from a Christian background or not a strict Christian background go like, well, that's silly. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But it doesn't matter if it's true or not, if you believe it. Because then it's true for you. So it's going to affect how you act. You know? And so, like, that's the thing where, you know, again, when somebody's saying... Like, well, when somebody's saying, hey, just weigh what I'm saying against scripture, but also if your interpretation is different than theirs, you're wrong. Do you really have the freedom to look it up for yourself? Like, not mm-hmm. really. <laughs> like, yeah. it's it's all kind of the illusion of choice. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that if we grow up in those kinds of spaces, we often even don't have um, the ability to interpret scripture right. differently from how we've been taught. So everything that we read is going to 
come to the same conclusions mm-hmm. as our, our pastors and teachers. It's our whole framework. We have yeah. the same approved yeah. authors they do, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. read this yeah. concordance, like literally read the Strong's concordance. That's the mm-hmm. best one, yep. you know, in reform circles, like, well, what does the John MacArthur commentary say? What is mm-hmm. the, you know, what is Mark Driscoll's book, you know, nine other misconceptions say like, what is, what is the, <laughs> right. you know, what's that, what's that list of pre-approved authors that you can mm-hmm. filter my words through? You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's illusion. Well, yeah, there was, there was uh, two non-Christian family members in my extended family who got Bibles for Christmas from the Christian family members <laughs> and they didn't know what to do with it. Like they were looking at it kind of confused and, you know, for fun, I just grabbed it and I started looking at, you know, who was the, cause the, the study Bibles always have somebody who's endorsing it, right? The, mm-hmm. the person's opinion. And then I started thinking of the ones I grew up with and I was like, I always looked for the commentary on the. Like as mm-hmm. exciting as the Bible was to me, and I was a little Bible nerd as a kid, I wanted to read the explanation for it because mm-hmm. the Bible is an ancient, complicated text that is not written for us. <laughs> it wasn't mm-hmm. written for us, and we're told it is. So then someone has to explain how it applies yeah. to today. And I remember reading those side – so Nate and I were just having fun flipping to the back and looking up what – topics they have, you know, topics about men, about sexuality, and they're trying to take the Bible and now say, this is how you apply it today. And it's it's so much, you know, this person's teaching, purity culture, whatever, you know, evangelical right. takes are now going to, now they're going to show you how the Bible fits that. Well, you even, know? And it's, I think it was uh, Beth Allison Barr was telling me, I think it was, I think it was her, it was either her or Amy Bird, but she was saying like, we forget like the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses. So mm-hmm. like, you know, even that there's a level of control to where, um, so like she was talking about the, the past about submission wives mm-hmm. to their husbands. And she said, there's a, there's a chapter break in almost every translation that says, you know, uh, the roles of submission or something like some variation of that over that ch- section of verses. And she's like, if you read the verse right above the section break, there's another verse about submission. And it's about men submit to your wives, wives submit to your husbands. It's like this verse about mutual submission. But the translators took and put the passage break under that. So you go into verses on submission between men and women, and it goes into wives obey your husbands. So like Mm -hmm. it, even in the structure of verses and chapters, it's, it's telling you where to look and what to look for. And that to me was like a mind blowing thing. And, and, you know, you can go way down the rabbit hole with the canon of scripture was decided in that way of right. this book right. is not in our eyes consistent with the rest. So it gets left out. These things align with what we think the Bible would say. Yep. It, it becomes a very messy, um, you know, someone recently, I don't, I don't know where this was, but someone recently said it's like the choose your own adventure kind of approach to it where it's like, you can really pick and choose whatever you want it to say. If you pick the right sequence of verses in the right context and mm-hmm. deliver it, even just saying like, this was written to you versus this is written to the church in this time frame about this. Like it's, you know, it, it, it gets very um, discouraging, like realizing how much stuff was applied to you when it was yeah. really not for you, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and going back to the whole and God is at the top of that too, right? Yeah. Like that that stops you from doing the 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 asking the questions that you should be doing, right? If you sure. say that man is at the top and this is his opinion, then you ask could he be wrong? But if you said I I don't I have a problem with this passage too just like you do, but these are not my words. These are God's right. words. 
So then it's like, yeah, the whole what you used to do as a kid, right? I can't argue with the top of this chain of command. It's God. So when you take the God Mm -hmm. out of that, you do have the person at the top that you can question about, do I agree with this Mm -hmm. person? Whereas when you're attributing it to deity who knows all is all knowing and all powerful, then that's a quick way to shut people down when they question you. Is just he's I'm not speaking for me. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not giving you my take. I'm giving you God's take. Yeah. So all those yeah. thought terminating cliches start coming out yes. very quickly, yep. which is yeah, like exactly our ways are not his ways, and like all those kind of things start becoming just language that you not only hear but you start telling yourself. Like it's yeah. you start going, oh, why am I doing that? Like who am I? <laughs> you know, who am I to question? Um, right. You know this this theology. And, you know, but then you start asking, like, who are they? You know, who's this person mm-hmm. telling me this, you know, and start oh flipping that script, you know. He got in an internet argument with someone recently. It was so funny because the guy was like, you know, first he was like bashing him for not being intellectual and was like, you know, you're, you know, you need to, you need to ask for wisdom and whatever. And then when he started, Nate started showing the history and getting it. Too much knowledge is is uh, yeah, you're not cr- supposed to like you're not supposed to read the Bible with enjoy all the mystery, and, you know. Yeah, right. It's right. You the just foolishness wisdom leads to or too much knowledge is, is foolishness, you yeah. know. And the quoting scripture to it's just you can't you can't really win anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, yeah. <clears throat> all that to say, um, that's that's a world that is um, yeah, that's rife with abuses. Both like the like what you were talking about how those mm-hmm. those leaders get. Um, something they have needs met by mm-hmm. taking advantage of uh, of people in these environments and taking advantage of this this role as the you know in IFB circles the man of God. But um, I even remember when I was at Hillsong, um, that kind of language being being brought out when they would bring up a a very popular guest speaker and they'd say, "Oh, you know, here's uh, here's the man of God today," and it was sort of tongue in cheek, but it wasn't. You know, the the these celebrity pastors who took on these grandiose roles and would get up on stage in front of an audience of, you know, 2000 people at once. And it's a lot of power, a lot of authority. Um, And yeah. And, and, and so uh, for, for your part, I I am very appreciative and very grateful of um, creators like you who are shining a light on these abuses of power um, and not just, um, in the realm of sexual abuse in churches, but also, you know, the many of us, like you were saying that you benefited more than you were harmed mm. in, in the short term. And yet you yourself were also a victim of, of those abuses. Yeah. You know, I think of that, that kind of paradox of being both um, a, a victim of, like I like in thinking about my experience at Hillsong, you know, and and the position that I had there, I was both a victim of the volunteer abuse that was going on at that church, but I was also complicit in abuse of other volunteers and so their time, their energy, their skills, and you know, simultaneously, I was being exploited as well. And and it's a weird kind of place to be in. Yeah, I realize I'm, I'm rabbit trailing a little bit, but yeah, that's kind of. When I have these conversations, I think about this a lot. You know? Well, it goes back to the many things can be true, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. and even on a, I was on a podcast the other day and I literally was talking about, um, yes, I benefited in terms of, I wasn't preyed on by male leaders as a female in the church. So that was not my experience. Um, and purity culture, you know, on its lowest levels really hurts women in more immediate ways. But, 
I say it like I benefited from it in air quotes because like it also affected me. Like it, it Mm -hmm. demonized emotion. It affected how I, you know, it gave me immense levels of shame. It, you know, going into marriage, you know, it impacts like you're shutting off input from uh, an equal to you who has their own life experiences and intelligence that they can speak into situations like you're crippling yourself by acting as though you're the only one with the answers and that you're the top dog in every situation. Like men are not getting out of that system scot-free. Um, it just looks like they get, they just get more power. Like power is the currency. You're getting a little bit more power, but you're living an unfulfilled life because you're going into sex going, you know, Oh, sex is for me, not for my spouse. You're going into, um, the stress of, being in a relationship and it's all on you. You're going into business being like, I'm the sole provider in this. Like you're doing a lot of damage to yourself. And it's why I feel bad for the people getting swept into the red pilled Andrew Tate style. Like Mm -hmm. they're, it's all the same thing, just different labels where you're losing the insights and the power of the input of 50% of the population by fulfilling this like alpha male pipe dream, you know, like whatever, whatever label you want to put on, whether it's purity culture, whether so like, are you really benefiting? No, you're just getting a little bit more temporary power that is not really benefiting you as much in any way as mutual love and respect does, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things. Like I, I feel like that's important to add is like, yeah, men don't get the, maybe the physical abuse. Like certainly some do, but don't as often get the physical abuse from a male perpetrator in IFB circles, but they're also being trained to live a very unfulfilled, sad, you know, um, basically incel style life that is extremely unfulfilling and depressing. And you have a wife that doesn't, (laughs) doesn't like being around you. Like, I don't know. Like, are you really winning, bro? Like probably not, (laughs) you know, that's a whole nother episode. We've this, this episode is titled, intros to several other episodes <laughs> that you will not hear here. <laughs> but. Exactly. Exactly. Um, anything else you wanted to bring up? No, I think that was a great conversation. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on. I uh, appreciate the work that you're doing to expose uh, abuse in the IFB world. I'm glad you have your other podcast as well, dealing with film that's unrelated where you could just detach happy, yourself happy, from that. Happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in, in the spirit of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, building off of that, is there anything that you want us to, to plug anything you want to plug yourself here as you're, you're, uh, you're talking with us. Yeah. I mean, uh, just the preacher boys podcast. I, I think that's like the biggest thing. Um, preacher boys podcast, wherever you listen to shows, um, on YouTube as well. If you like watching podcasts, um, I don't know why you'd want to watch me talk for an hour. It's probably easier to listen. Um, but <laughs> you know, and on Facebook, Instagram, like, Wherever you like consuming content, I'm there somewhere in some form. So you can uh, you can choose your own adventure there. Um, watch Let Us Pray on HBO Max, and hopefully, knock on wood, if enough people watch it, there will be more. Um, you know, fingers crossed, all of those things. And um, yeah, I mean, just keep an eye out there when this drops. I'm sure if there's anything new, you'll find it on any of those pages. So just Preacher Boys would be the best way to find me. Cool. Absolutely. And then uh, for any film nerds who are listening, who are interested in some of your other work, you have another podcast, right? Yeah. Film School podcast, Film School on YouTube. Um, it's uh, definitely something I'm really excited about and going to 2024, have a lot of 
thoughts about plans around like kind of making the content less and less, uh, uh, I guess, uh, average and making it more interesting, more exciting and less of just me talking and more video essays and like stuff like that. So I'm excited about that. And like I said, it's, it's a lot less dark, dreary and depressing as my other work. So, um, I have another side. There's another side to all this, you know? Nice. Nice. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and, uh, and hopefully we'll see you around again sometime soon. Yeah. I think we have enough uh, loose threads we can tie up in later episodes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of the full mutuality podcast. We're so glad you decided to join us today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, and pretty much every other podcast app. Just search for Full Mutuality on your app of choice or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, for links to all of the apps that you can subscribe to us on. And if you enjoyed what you've heard, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website. A quick review is one of the best ways you can support us. Speaking of support... You can also partner with us on Patreon. For just $5 US a month, you'll be helping us produce this podcast and you'll get access to other content such as exclusive episodes, access to occasional live streamed recording sessions, and more. Just head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to sign up. Thanks again for hanging out with us today and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content.